You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Today we're in the second part of Obadiah. Uh, Now, if if you don't know, Obadiah is considered one of the minor prophets, and this is not because the message is unimportant, it's because this is the smallest book of the Bible. Um, It is, the small book though has some very big things to say and some uh, very big truths that we need to hear. Now, last week we saw a people, the people of Edom, Uh, and if you remember, they were filled with pride, and due to their pride, uh, they were going to meet their destruction. Uh, God was going to humble them. Uh, But the question I have as I'm I'm studying this is, okay, well, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where Edom and Israel hate one another? How do we get to the point of verse 10 when it says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. As we see the Edomites, they're called brothers to Israel. They're relatives, they're family. So how do we get to this Hatfield-McCoy situation that we have between these two? Furthermore, What can we learn about the Lord and about ourselves uh, from these two groups, Edom and Israel? And today I really want to focus on Edom. Uh, They are the ones being written about, but also in verses 11 through 14, I want you to take note that there's several do nots. Do not do this. Do not do that. Do not do this. And these things are uh, foretold, prophetically foretold, that what they're going to do, but also what they have already done, which is why in verse 10, right, the Lord says, because of the violence you've already done. Now, if you're a note taker, I have three points. That is delighting in their misfortune, profiting from their misfortune, and participating in their misfortune. Though I do want to give you a heads up. Uh, I do, before we get to the points, I have a pre-point it's not a sub-point. I wouldn't call it a point into itself. It's just a pre-point. It's like an appetizer, if you will, that I would like to get to to give some explanation of how we got to this point. So let's go ahead and pray before we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your grace that we get to be here and worship you, that we get to know you, know you well enough so that we can sing that we can have your word and that you can use it to build us up, that you can use it to Show us where we have sin in our lives. And I pray that's what happens this morning. That you can use your word to reveal sin and that we can respond in worship and repentance. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you remember last week, uh, before there were two nations, before there was Israel and Edom, there was Jacob and Esau. Two brothers who were very different. If you remember Jacob, he was mom's favorite, right? He was mama's boy and also a chef, apparently, a good one. And then you had Esau, who was like a man's man. And he was his dad's favorite. He was the hairy hunter. Now, Jacob is a trickster, as we saw. And he deceives both his dad and his brother Esau, uh, stealing his inheritance, leaving Esau with nothing but disappointment. Um, But we see that Esau wants revenge. We read in Genesis 27, Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, that I will kill my brother Jacob. Now his mom, Jacob's mom, informs him, hey, your brother wants to kill you, and so Jacob leaves. Years would go by, and then Jacob would experience your typical boy meets girl, girl tricks and gets 
uh, he gets tricked into marrying a uh, sister, but also marries the love of his life at the same time. You've heard the story a thousand times. You know how it goes. And then we see that by Genesis 32, uh, Jacob is hearing that Esau is approaching, that Esau is close, and wants to, and of course, remembering that he wants to kill him. It reads in Genesis 32, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, for he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. So naturally, Jacob is worried. He's worried uh, for his own life. He's worried about the lives of his, the, his wives and his children to the point where he couldn't even sleep the night before. Jacob even prepared a rescue, or excuse me, an escape plan, which included the least favorite of his wives being murdered, and that would give him a sign that he should leave, like a typical husband. Um, and so he, that's his plan. But on the day uh, would come where Esau would arrive, and something very unexpected happened. It's in Genesis 33. It says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Now, wait a minute. Jacob was deeply concerned that Esau was coming to kill him. He's been concerned about this for years, for at least 14 years, that Esau wanted him dead. But when Esau finally meets Jacob, it's an incredibly wonderful meeting. He's kissing him. He's hugging him. He's, in fact, there's, there's tears of joy that they're back together. It's a wonderful response, right? There's no murdering or pillaging or there's no stabbing of one another, right? They're really happy, or Esau, rather, is happy to see him. Esau even says he looks up and he sees the wives and the children, and he is excited to meet his family that he's never gotten to meet. So how did this seemingly reconciled story of brothers, how did this end up with their descendants warring with one another? The next time we see the Enemites would be years later when Moses is leading them out of Egypt through the desert and towards the land that God had promised them. We see this in Numbers 20. It says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. This is Moses speaking. You know all the hardships we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and how we lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And we, when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. It's a simple request. And notice Moses calls them brothers. He knows the relationship between the two. Moses is aware they're related, asking for permission, and it seems as if he's expecting a simple yes, like why, why wouldn't they? He even tries to say, you know what we've been through, do you mind? Listen to the response in Numbers 20. It says, but Edom said to him, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. And verse 20 says, And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. So we see Edom 
There is a grudge that is present. They are not, they do not want Israel in their territory. And uh, now, this is, this is difficult for Israel because what are they to do? They're actually commanded in Deuteronomy 23.7, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. So the people who don't care if you're being chased by Egyptians or what you've dealt with, sorry, we don't care. Meanwhile, Israel is not supposed to hate them. And they struggle, and they, they don't do a really good job at keeping that law, but they're to their defense. Uh, from this point on, the Edomites are truly a pain in their side. And this seemingly restored relationship between Jacob and Esau sours. Edom later uh, ends up invading Israel and, and losing. The Edomites fight against David, and he has to end up killing uh, many of them. Solomon struggles with the Edomites, and he has to kill a bunch of them, and then forces thousands of them into slavery. But the question I have for Edom is why are you so mad? Is it political differences? Is this simply just a, a land dispute in the Middle East? What I think it probably was is an unrighteous anger that stems from jealousy. That God seemed to bless these people, Israel, who he said were his people. And let's be honest, if Jacob had not deceived for the, for the Edomites, they would they sit around thinking, well, that would have been us. We would have been the chosen people had Jacob not deceived Esau. Our father would have been the chosen one, and we would have been the chosen people had it not been for him and what he did. But what we do see, and what we can learn, I think, is what happens when we hate for all the wrong reasons. And when bitterness builds, uh, it becomes our undoing. Look at our first point. It's delighting in their misfortune. This is verse 11, chapter 1. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried out his wealth, and foreigners entered in his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Now, we see Edom is watching and did nothing while their brother Israel is being pillaged by the Babylonians. And Scripture talks about their posture. What is it? They stood aloof. They stood cold and distant. And they watched while their extended family was at their lowest point. They're not there to comfort. They're not there to help. They're on the sidelines observing the pain of others and what others are doing. And, and we even see that it seems to be that they're kind of giddy. They're like one of them, like one of the Babylonians that are enjoying what's happening. The Edomites are enjoying what is happening to their brother. It'd be like the Gestapo, right, coming and ripping away everything these people had worked for. And you can imagine what, what that might look like. You can imagine the crying as memories are stolen away as all that you would work for would, be, would vanish in a moment. People that you knew and loved, neighbors that you grew up with, watching them be killed in the streets. Meanwhile, someone who was supposed to be your brother watches it all happen, even smirking as it happens. 
Because for them, this is a legacy made right. Look at verse 12. It says, But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. It says, Do not gloat. Do not rejoice. Do not boast. All three they would do. They're receiving pure delight watching the suffering. And I know that I, I don't think that any of us here in this room have ever pillaged a town or watched someone pillage a town. I guarantee in some way, each of us have watched and rejoiced as someone we resented was hurt and humbled. Now, my brother and I, we were typical brothers. We feuded. We were pretty competitive and growing up, I'd always was jealous of my brother Jonathan. Um, he was he was good looking. He was he was taller. He was uh, really athletic, and I was hairier. That's the only claim to fame I had in our house. I was like Esau, right? I could grow like a goatee at eight. That was the best I could do. Now, uh, I never saw that really as an advantage that I got to be hairier. But until, uh, until I noticed that my brother could not grow facial hair, then I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Right? I had something he didn't, that he couldn't have. And his face, it was, it was like covered in that fine, fine baby hair all over his face. And I remember one day, he walked in, and all of a sudden, on his chin, he had like this dark beard. And I could feel it in my chest. I'm like, wait a minute, this is what I have. This is the one thing I got over you is a luscious chin of pear. And now you have this. And as I looked closer, I noticed something. There was, his beard had a smear. It was a smeared beard. Now, I didn't know much at the time, but I know, I know enough to know that, that beards don't smear. Not real ones. And it turned out he had taken, I can't remember the name of it, first service told me, but it's the stuff that ladies go like this with with their eyes. They poke their eyes with it or something. Yeah, mascara. He, did, he apparently took mascara and he, and he colored his baby fuzz all over his face so he would have a beard. And he did what brothers do. He came in my room and he made fun of me about something and you know, joked on me. And then he was going on a date. And he asked me, uh, he looked at me and goes, how do I look? I just smiled. So you look amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And he left, and I waved to him goodbye. And as I did, I was delighting in what would inevitably be his misfortune due to the smeared beard. Now, my jealousy caused me to want my brother to be humiliated, for him to fail on a date. I wanted them to get made fun of. And when you sit back and you go, man, that's horrible. And it is. But we do it all the time. Now listen, I want to make it clear. It's not always sinful to want to see failure. Um, we should want to see heretics fail. We should want to see enemies of the gospel fail. Uh, and, and there can even be rejoicing when they do fail. There should be, in fact. But this is not what we're looking at here, right? Edom and Israel, Jacob and Esau, right? This is family. They're called brothers. This is more akin to our relationship with one another in the local body. 
This is more akin to each other being aloof as another one is in pain or not caring for at all for the hardship that one is facing. All of us are guilty of being aloof from our brothers in pain, cold and distant. Maybe someone in the past who annoyed you, bothered you, or someone who just got under your skin for whatever reason. And where you find yourself just aloof, watching them, enjoying all the hardships that they face. Someone you're supposed to love and care for. Look, as members of the body, as those who are called the bride of Christ, we don't have that option. We are supposed to care for one another and not be aloof. Right? Non-action, by the way, is not neutral. It's a form of hatred. Now, Ecclesiastes says there's a time to love, and it says there's also a time to hate. And if you want to know the time of hate, you can go read the article that's on the app. But for Edom, the time to hate was not while their brother was being humiliated. This was a time to love and to encourage, to defend. So we should resist the urge to be Edom, absent from duty, AWOL in the spiritual battle of our brothers and sisters. Church, let us learn that, that God is unpleased with Edom's aloofness. And that we, when we are guilty of the same thing, God is equally displeased. And let me encourage you, if you know one who's hurting, who's lonely, who's struggling, you don't have to be able to fix it. No doubt the, Edoms could, the Edomites could not uh, overpower uh, the Babylonians, but they're still guilty for being cold and distant and doing nothing. Our inability to solve the issue does not prohibit us from being present. We are not to just stand aloof and watch, but rather encourage each other, emboldening one another to fight the good fight. But when our heart is bent towards bitterness, it never ends with just watching. Like sin, it grows, it evolves, and it progresses into something more which is to my second point, profiting from their misfortune. Do not enter the gate of my people, verse 13 says. In the day of their calamity, do not gloat over his disaster. In the day of his calamity, do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. They go from watching to taking part. Right? Notice in the first part, they're watching someone take wealth. Now we see they are actively looting in the day of their calamity. Now they're entering the gates of Jerusalem and taking what they want. That's usually how this progression tends to work, right? Feeling good about their pain is not enough. It's not enough for you. And we tend to think the humiliation is not good enough for them. They need a little bit more. Edom, no doubt, like all bitter and resentful people, believed they were owed something. So further pain will be needed to equal the playing field. Israel, you must lose more. You must hurt more. You must be brought lower than what you were to pay back 
what you took from our family. And I can somewhat understand the jealousy. Right? Israel gets this land promised to them, this land of milk and honey. Meanwhile, Edom gets what's called barren red hills. What scripture calls a wasteland run by jackals. So they get the good life. All because Jacob decided he was going to lie and steal an inheritance. You can imagine Edom justifying their actions. This was supposed to be ours anyways. We were exploited and now we're simply taking back what is owed to us. You can see how this attitude can lead to ruin. When you forget that each breath is a graceful gift that you do not deserve, your entitlement will lead you to bitterness. and will lead you to seeking profit from the misery of those who you deem unworthy of love and who you deem unworthy of God's grace. That's the attitude of Edom. And this manifests differently uh, between us. But sadly, the church is not immune. Listen, there's a reason why, and I, this is going to be no shocker to you. I don't think anyone's going to be like, really? That there's a such thing as turf wars between churches. People who are supposed to be brothers. Congregations who are supposed to be brothers and sisters, jealous and resentful of one another, hoping just, man, if that church could go down, maybe we can get some more members. Maybe our budget can get a little bit bigger. Think of all the things we could do. I mean, that, that person used to be in our church anyways. There's a reason. There's a reason why that exists. Sadly, sadly churches see themselves more often in competition than brothers. I've seen people, I've talked to some of you, who've been deeply jealous because someone's ministry seemingly is doing better than the thing you wanted to do. I had this outreach and no one got behind it. I wanted to do this and no one wants to do that. And this resentful between a, against a mass of people against another individual who was blessed in some capacity. And desiring for them to fail in some way. And I hope you can spot that and realize how dark and sinful and self-centered that is. How that's the way of Edom and not the way of the Lord. For most of us, the most common return we get when others fail is that sweet feeling of superiority, right? Usually that's how we profit from the hurt of others, right? It's that feeling of, I told you so. I told you so. Man, how sweet it is to be able to tell others, I told you so, over and over and over again, letting everyone know that you knew this was going to happen, that you said so. Now, some feel better to being right. As I confess to you, in my childhood, for me, it was all about chin hairs. You got to work with what you got, right? 
Now, like most people, um, the looting I was hoping for, uh, when, when I, there wasn't material gain necessarily involved in the looting of my, of my brother, I, that I did hope to profit in some way. In my twisted mind, right, I thought maybe his loss somehow would be my gain. I, I imagined, you know, the chatting of strangers that heard about us. Did you hear about the Barry kids? Did you hear about Jonathan Barry and his beard malfunction? Man, that Jeremy Barry, he has a luscious beard. Yes, he's an upstanding young man. But these things never occur. Thank you, by the way. This is... You, you never expect, you never get what you really are expecting to get when, when you're going to profit from someone else's misery. In your mind, it looks very different than what it does in reality. What we hope to get never comes because it's not rooted in reality. It's rooted in some sort of perverse lie we've told ourselves that somehow we deserve more than our brother. And what we see in our hearts is the same what we see with Edom. Profiting is never enough, and it evolves. And we get to the point where we are participating in their misfortune. Look at verse 14. It says, Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. As the Babylonians are invading the city, some are fleeing. And Edom knows where they're going and they know what to do and no longer is watching and looting enough. They need to be actively participating in their agony. They must not escape their grief. Not yet. These chosen people, they've had it good for long enough. So Edom... What they did was they went to the crossroads where they were fleeing to cut off their escape and they turned back these families towards death and back towards enslavement. Pregnant mothers, elderly fathers, it didn't matter. Their unrighteous bitterness blinded them from doing what was right and surely, right, we've, we've never done this. We never participated in someone's agony. Never. Never. We've never been so guilty of participating in gossip or slander. We've never been eager to share with someone something we saw so that we could maybe get a someone that agrees with us on how horrible someone else is. We've never actively tried to make someone look worse by retelling stories about smeared beards. Listen, truth is, Christians, we have a bad record. A bad record of mistreating one another. We have a bad record of being petty. We have a bad record of being spiteful, resentful, acting more like Edom than like Christ. Paul actually experiences Christians participating in his misfortunes. It's nothing new. Look at uh, Philippians uh, 1.15 and then verse 17. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy or rivalry. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
if we're not careful, we can mask our evil intentions, evil motives that resemble that of Edom, and we can pretend to serve Christ, yet our hearts are really desiring to afflict those who we're called to care for and to love, who we're supposed to call brother. There's a reason why there's church hurt. Why church hurt is a, a real thing that we deal with a lot here as pastors. People coming from other churches that, that have been hurt by people that were supposed to care for them. There are many of you who've been hurt deeply by someone who was supposed to be a brother. And we know if we're honest, we tend to respond more like Edom with resentment, with bitterness, with anger, with a desire to rejoice at their undoing. In our flesh, right, we tend to respond more like Cain, more like Edom. And we want those who have wronged us to come groveling back, begging for forgiveness. I mean, if you can imagine, if, 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 you, have, if you struggle with resentment and bitterness, then you know how sweet it would be for that person who you just are angry at to come groveling back, begging for your forgiveness so you could look over them and rain down on them conditions for your forgiveness. Because in the Edom's economy, confession and repentance is not enough, right? You must pay to right the wrongs. There must be some sort of penance, some sort of pain by you to make it okay, to make the past heal. And this is a sad reality within the church. Not just the church in general, but our own local body, no doubt. If this is you, struggling to forgive, and you find yourself enjoying, hoping to profit and even participate in the pain of others, I, I would ask that you would reflect on the gospel to give you some insight on how we should approach this. If we're not going to approach it like Edom, then how do we approach it? When we see Jesus being murdered, the world watched. There was rejoicing, there was gloating, boasting, mocking. People who he called brothers, fellow Jews, they all watched cold and distant, rejoicing in what was happening. We see some profiting. They got that feeling of superiority to be able to see, I told you, he was just a man, nothing special. King of kings. Let's see him take himself off the cross. It was that feeling of being able to say, I told you so. And all their influence and power, all those things that were threatened by Christ, they got to hold on to it for now. Now all of us have participated in the suffering of Christ because it was our sin that put him there. Now I want you to think about that, about the gospel narrative 
when we approach on how to forgive and seek reconciliation, before we embrace bitterness and resentment of Edom, that we can think of Christ, the gospel, which has two major characters, humanity and Jesus. And in this narrative, think about it, who wronged who? Who betrayed who? It was us. It was man. But who pursued who? Who chased down death to save those who were his enemies to now make them his friends? Did he ask that first before he forgives you, you have to come grovel at his feet? Not at all. Rather, he shows grace upon grace upon grace while you were still in your sin. What we see is one who purchased back the rebellious to make them sons and daughters of a king. And we see that Christ perfectly models forgiveness and reconciliation where the one who was offended, the one who was hurt, it is he that pursues reconciliation. Now Edom perfectly models how to live in resentment and bitterness and we see what that's ultimately going to cost them. It's going to cost them their entire life. They will die by it. And it's not that Edom is desiring justice. Justice is a wonderful thing. You can, you can actually forgive someone and still let justice take its course. It's not that Edom wanted repentance. Repentance would be a wonderful thing. No. They wanted to rejoice. They wanted to be gleeful and happy and profit and participate in the downfall of their brother. And they knew nothing of grace. So we, who know all about grace, we are children of grace, we have a choice to live as Edom, to live and die by jealousy, or we can model Christ. So even when we are hurt, we pursue forgiveness, praying for their repentance, remembering what the word says, that we are bearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Churches of people who have been given grace in life due to Christ's desire to reconcile us to himself, we ought to reject the way of Edom and embrace the way of Christ. It should be a no-brainer. And we should carry with us this message of reconciliation as we go, not only to the lost, but to one another. Because let's be honest, most of the resentment and bitterness that builds is in the family. So we're to carry this message to even one another. Listen, if there are people that you are upset with that you're holding an unrighteous grudge towards, if you know that there's a bitterness and a resentment that swells in your heart, 
there are sisters or brothers, maybe even pastors who you, for whatever reason, have been hurt by, and you want nothing more than to see their fall for your own enjoyment, I would ask that you repent, confess to your Lord, and pursue them in the model the gospel lays out. I also know that this process can be very difficult. And to be honest with you, I have suffered, I have dealt with much bitterness and resentment for years, for years, struggled with it. And Scripture's clear that it will leave, lead to your ruin. It will be your undoing. You will suffer. And so if that is you, I want to tell you that Will, Pastor James, Pastor Patrick, or myself would love to chat with you and, and help you through that challenge because we know it's not an easy one. So church, let us pray together and let's pray for each other. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.